John Constantine, a Hellblazer podcast. and welcome back before we get into the episode just want to let you know that this is the free version of the podcast and all that means is that we are way behind where i'm at in patreon so if you are loving this podcast and you need more john constantine in your life definitely go check us out at patreon.com slash planes trains and comic books and sign up for the hellblazer tier where you'll get access to the entire hellblazer library that i've recorded so far and also you get access to the exclusive episodes of the planes trains and comic books main podcast so if any of that sounds good to you, definitely go over to patreon.com slash planes, trains, and comic books, all one word, and sign up there. And with that out of the way, let's get into the issue. Today we are reading Hellblazer number 64, and just a little recap on what happened in the last issue, John Constantine turned 40 years old. And I didn't mention this in the episode because it kind of slipped my mind, but John Constantine is one of the few characters in comics that actually ages in real time. So every year that goes by as we read this, he is one year older. And I know that when this series ends around issue 300, John is about 60 years old then, and I can't really think of any other character in comics who ages like that. So anyway, in the last issue, John turned 40. He thought he was gonna be alone because Kit was out because her aunt got sick. And so he was at home alone and he was feeling kind of depressed. And then a couple of his friends showed up some we knew, some we didn't know, but they throw him a big party and he has a pretty good birthday and the issue ended with him going to bed all drunk and then Kit coming home and seeing her apartment trashed and then walking into the room and seeing John there passed out and getting all mad at him. And that's where we left off with the last issue. So first things first with issue 64, we got the cover here. We see there is a burning man on fire in the background. We can't tell much about him other than he is completely engulfed in flames. We do see one section of his skin on his left arm that isn't burning yet. And there is a tattoo that says my England and there is a British flag above it. Then hovering over that image is an angel who looks like he's flying straight up and he's naked and his wings are outstretched and he's got a sword in his hand that he's pointing straight up like he's getting ready for battle. And we also see on the cover that this is written by Garth Ennis with art by Steve Dillon. And we start off on the first page outside of the Cambridge Club. And we have seen this club before, if you remember all the way back in issue 43. I think it was the first time we actually met Chantinelli as well. Uh, John goes to this club to talk to a man known as the Snob. And I don't remember everything about their interaction from that issue, but I'm pretty sure we know that the snob is an angel and John does not like talking to him very much. So over this panel of the Cambridge Club, we get some narration that says, so there's this terrible place, right? And all you have to do to get in is you have to be a bloke who went to Cambridge. In other words, your dad had to have been rich enough to put you right at the top of the shit pile. That way you were set for life, mate. You were up there for good, looking down on all the other arseholes and you could come here anytime you liked to bloody well revel in it. So that's what this place is. It's a club for people who like to look down on others. It's a club for snobs. So while this narration was going on, we were seeing little snippets of things going on inside of that club. And all that was going on was just rich old white men walking around and drinking and hanging out. But at the very end of that narration where he said snobs, we are focusing on a man sitting in front of a fireplace. And this is the man that John knows as the snob. 
And we see the name of this issue is Fear and Loathing Part 1 for God and Country. And as the snob is sitting in his chair, he's thinking about something. And as he's thinking, we're getting flashes of him as an angel. And the narration says, something had been wrong for two years now. And as frightened as he was to admit it, what worried him was, well, to begin at the beginning, he was Gabriel of the Cherubim. He was Jibriel of the El Carubian, those brought near to Allah. He soared through the first sunrise and sang his joy to the firstborn of the world, and every living thing learnt how to smile. He walked through Babylon with roses in his hair. He'd given the Sumerians water of life. He'd covered stirring sleepers with his wings beneath the pyramids. It was the will of the Lord, and he bathed in Assyrian blood, spiked Egyptian infants high on spears, torn eyes and guts and ribs and jaws from bodies of still-living men. Sodom and Gomorrah died in an apocalypse of fire, though why one man shouldn't have another, he didn't know. He just did as he was bid, the will of the Lord. So the first panel we saw of him as an angel was him flying all happy in, in front of the sunlight and everything. And then the second panel we see of him as an angel is him murdering a bunch of people with his sword. And the next panel of him is Gabriel forcing himself onto a woman. And the narration says, He'd committed rape behind a carpenter's in Nazareth, and a cycle of agony began that ended on a hill above Jerusalem, the will of the Lord. So this is implying that Gabriel was the angel of the Lord that came down and got Mary pregnant. And I'm sure this is very controversial, but he's saying that he forced himself onto Mary and that that was the will of the Lord. So we focus on him thinking again, and his narration says, it was not for him to doubt. Everything that happened was the creator's will. Nothing surprised the Lord of hosts. And then the snob begins to think back to the last time that he saw John Constantine. And I mentioned it before, but that was all the way back in issue 43. And what was going on in that story arc was John was dying of cancer. He'd gone to the snob to ask for help. When John got to the club, he saw the snob talking to a man named Charlie Patterson. And Charlie was trying to talk to the snob to get some political advancement. I don't think that Charlie knows the snob is an angel. But he definitely knows John Constantine because as Charlie walked out, they'd had a bit of an interaction where we learned in John's thoughts that Charlie was part of a group called the National Front. And that is a nationalistic racist organization that was around in the 80s and early 90s, I guess, in Britain. So when John talked to the snob and the snob refused to help John, John pointed out that the snob shouldn't be so high and mighty because of the people that he keeps in contact with the snob's father wouldn't really like that. And it seems that Gabriel really took that to heart. I guess he's so high up in his mind, he's not even paying attention to the humans that are asking favors of him, if they're good or bad. So we're seeing the snob think back to this moment with Constantine where he pointed that out, and the narration says, so Constantine was right. The man he'd spoken to, Charles Patterson, was a bully and a racist thug, a sinner. So why had he, Gabriel, even been allowed to talk to him? Why hadn't he at least been reprimanded? The will of the Lord? And what was willed for him now then? Why was he suddenly headed in the strangest of directions? His heart full of troubles, the archangel decided to take the air. So the snob stands up and he begins to walk outside. And apparently this is a very rare thing to happen because people take notice as he does this. Specifically, there is a waiter who definitely takes notice of the snob walking out. Then we see that waiter on the phone with someone and the person he's talking to is saying, he what and the waiter replies he left sir usually he's there by the fire one minute and disappeared the next but tonight he walked out and the man on the phone yells 
God, this is unbelievable. I mean, damn, damn and bugger. Look, you will have to follow him. Do you understand? And the waiter replies, but I'm on duty, sir. And the man on the phone yells, frig your duty. You follow him and report to me or I'll have your balls on a stick, you little turd. And with that, the waiter begins to run outside. And as he does that, he passes a couple people who say to him, I say, Thompson, three more pink gins and a cognac. Be quick about it, and you shall have a shilling. And the second man begins to laugh and says, A shilling? Splendid, oinkers. But before they can laugh together, Thompson yells out behind him, Stick it up your arse, you old queer. And he throws on his jacket, he runs out the door, and begins to follow the snob. Then we cut to John and Kit's apartment, where we see John and Kit are laying in bed, and they are naked, and it looks like they have just made love. And I believe this is supposed to take place directly after the last issue ended. So after Kit got done yelling at him, apparently they made love. And apparently it was very satisfying for Kit because she turns to John and says, I see you still know the way to a girl's heart. And John replies, via her knickers. And Kit exclaims, you dirty old bugger. And John kind of chuckles and says, ah, oh, less of the old. You think I want to be reminded? And Kit says, ah, oh, you're doing rightly. When my dad reached 40, he was half dead of drink, so he was. And John cuts in, there's that bloody F word again. So do you forgive me for the party then? And Kit retorts, a way out of that? You think you can wreck my flat and charm your way out of it with a quick scene too? You're arse, mate. Hmm, do you fancy a cup of tea? And John replies, yeah. And Kit says, good, make us one while you're at it, will you? Then we cut to later that morning where John has already made their tea for them and they're both getting ready to start their day. And John is saying to Kit, I'm going out tonight, love. I forgot to tell you. And Kit replies, Ah, you're fine. I have to finish that cover for the new Amos book anyway. And John jokes, Is this another exploration of the complexities of his own arsehole? And Kit replies, Ah, John, who cares? It's just a hack job. I'll string a couple of bits of lace over a few leaves and paint the background to look like stone. Bollockhead in the office will stick a wee border around it and we'll call it postmodern. And away you go. And then she looks at John for a second and she pauses and says, Your hair looks nice like that. And in the yard, there's nothing really special about his hair that I can see. It just looks like normal John Constantine hair. But maybe because he's freshly showered and dressed, maybe it looks nicer. So John takes the compliment with a smile, and he looks at Kit, and he says, You know, I'm always meaning to tell you yours is nice. And Kit says, Aw. And as John looks at her, his narration says, And that you're everything to me, Kit. Then we come back to the snob who is walking on the streets of London. And as he's walking, everybody's staring at him. And I think it's because since he's an angel, he must give off some kind of aura that people notice. Not like a visible aura, but just a feeling they get. So as he walks, his narration says, He remembered the look upon the face of Abraham. Yes, Lord, I will take my son Isaac and make of him a burnt offering to thee. Acceptance, faith, true faith, how he longed to regain it. And these sinners walking by, these sheep in the fields, he couldn't even look down on them with that pride he'd treasured in his secret moments. The doubt had just killed it, stone dead. The doubt that Constantine had begun. Oh Lord, what was it doing to him? What? And then because he was so deep in thought, the snob accidentally bumps into a woman. And she looks like she's maybe in her 20s. She's a white woman with short blonde hair. And I don't think I've described the snob yet, so I'll describe him here. He's dressed all fancy with black pants and a white shirt with a white jacket and a bow tie. And just generally, he's about a foot taller than everybody else on the street. And he is white and he has slicked back hair. And that is blonde as well. So as he bumps into her, she says, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. I'm so stupid sometimes. And she looks up at him and... <laughs> 
she sees him staring down at her and he looks like she is so beneath him and he doesn't say anything to her and then she looks at him walks away and says well, don't say anything then you rotten snob and because she used the word snob that kind of snaps him out of his arrogance and then all of a sudden he's got a look of concern on his face and the narration says that that's what constantine calls him and that demon witch and the whole pack of jackals so the snob turns around and he says wait and then he walks over to the woman and he says please i didn't mean to i i'm sorry and then her face changes from contempt to a small smile and she says well that's that's okay and the snob continues his apology saying i uh i should not have been so haughty i was distracted i can only beg for forgiveness and that seems a bit overkill for for just bumping into someone on the street so she kind of chuckles and says oh you don't have to say that and I guess because he looks so sad, she says, look, are you all right? I mean, do you want to talk or something? Because you seem awfully wound up. And the snob is taken aback, but he replies, I, I believe I would like that. And she introduces herself and she says, okay, I'm Julie, by the way. And Gabriel shakes her hand saying, Gabriel. And she replies, that's really nice. Like the angel, you mean, in the Bible? And Gabriel replies, yes, like the angel. Then we cut to John, who is hanging out in a pub with his friend Rick the Vicar. And the reason he's meeting with Rick is because Rick has brought him some sort of Bible that is special in some way. And it's actually like a really small-sized Bible. And as John flips through the pages, he says, pocket-sized and everything. Cheers, Rick. And Rick replies, my pleasure. And then he picks up a jar in front of him on the table, and he opens it to look inside, possibly smell. And it just has clear liquid in it, but Rick says... Ah, joy, the nectar of the gods. And John says, if you say so, what have you got in mind for it anyway? And then Rick turns to him with a sly look and says, now, John, I have no more intention of revealing my plans for this than you have yours for that fine volume before you. Hmm? So he's kind of seeing if John will tell him why John wants that little Bible. And John just silently picks up his glass to drink. And Rick says, ah, John, you'll be in heaven half an hour before the devil knows you're dead. And I guess that just means that John is very clever. So Rick gets up to leave and then John hears someone else call his name. And when he turns to look to see who it is, he sees two black men walking up to him and he recognizes one of them and he says, bloody hell, Dez, where have you been hiding? And Dez replies, hiding bollocks, son. Do you see who's down from Brum? And then he points to the black man under his arm. And then that man looks at John and says, hello. And John looks at the second man and says, George? You've changed, mate. Then John shakes George's hand. Then Dez offers to buy everybody sitting at the table a drink, saying, I'll get him in. And then because he doesn't know Rick sitting at the table, he kind of looks at him questioningly. And Rick says, Reverend Nelson, Rick, a small sherry would be nice. And I love this because before Dez offered to buy drinks, Rick was going to leave, but he apparently can't turn down free booze. And I'll describe them as they sit down. We see Dez is wearing a pair of jeans and a cutoff shirt that shows off his very muscular arms, so he must work out. And he's got kind of a flat top look with a goatee. And then George has on what looks like a tracksuit. He's a bit slimmer in build than Dez, and he's got short dreadlocks with a red baseball cap on. And as they sit, he says to John, it's my first time back in the smoke since 89, John. And John says, at least you've still got the accent. Frig me, last time I saw you, you were what, 18? And then George replies, yeah, I can do a Brummy accent if you want. You're right, like, Birmingham, that's me, like, me name's Barry, so's me mates and is. John kind of chuckles and says, not bad, 
Why'd you leave Brum then? And Rick interjects, Immense good taste, I should imagine. And George answers, Cause some bastard burnt me house down, that's why. And as George talks, we get a little flashback of what happened that night. And he says, Me and these two lads from Wexham were squatting, right? So one night I come home, and there's this dickhead on fire in the friggin' garden. I couldn't bloody believe it. I was trying to work out how the frig to put him out. But then I saw what he'd been up to. And we see in the flashback that George looks over next to the man who is burning. And we see a cross on the lawn that has been covered in gasoline and a gasoline can next to it. So it seems the man on fire is a racist who is trying to scare George away by burning a cross on his front lawn. So John and Rick are kind of serious and Rick asks, did you help him? And George replies, did I? Bollocks. Who did he think he was? The freaking Ku Klux Klan? So the prick sets himself on fire trying to scare us. Well, sought him. And the coppers were no bloody help to us either. And as Dez returns from the bar, he comments, are they ever? And George continues, couple of weeks later, we got a petrol bomb through the window and that was that. And as Dez hands out the drinks, he says to George, I don't know why you came down here, mate. They're all at it. The bloody national front, British movement. And then John adds, yeah, Europe and all. You see these arseholes in Germany? And Rick cuts in, Ah yes, the Hun. It seems that we once again shall have to climb into our hurricanes and spitfires and give Fritz another sound thrashing. And then he takes a sip of his sherry and John puts his hands in his head embarrassed for, for what he just said. And George and Des look at Rick like, is this guy serious? And George just continues saying, yeah, well, I mean, they're all gonna have to watch their arses if they keep trying this shit on us, right? Did you see that thing in Los Angeles last year? That's the clearest bloody warning they're going to get, but they're too stupid to face it. And I'm not sure exactly what George is talking about because there was a lot of unrest in Los Angeles in the early 90s, but he might be talking about the Rodney King incident and riots that followed. So before George can continue, the bartender yells to John, Oi, Constantine, phone for you. So John gets up and walks over to the phone, and we don't hear the caller's side of the conversation, but we see John say, Yeah, right. We're in business then. Take it slowly, right? Bring us back here tomorrow, about noon. And we don't really know what the context of that conversation was. It kind of sounds like he's about to be given something that you have to take. But the whole time he was talking, the bartender, who is a middle-aged woman, is giving him the eyes. So, so she's definitely trying to hit on him. So as John wraps up his conversation, she asks, Good news, John? And John kind of smiles and he says, Yeah. And she gets bold, maybe just because he answered her. <laughs> and she asks, fancy little celebration and it seems like she's probably asking him for a quickie out back or something but he takes this to mean something else so he turns to the whole bar and he says oh great Janie says it's drinks on the house lads and she looks horrified as he says this because she did not mean that at all and now she has to give everybody free drinks then we cut to a restaurant where the snob and julie are sitting and talking and she says to gabriel are you sure you wouldn't like something and gabriel answers no thank you I don't drink. And she's amused by this because I guess most of the men in her life drink. And she says, you're one of a dying breed these days, Gabriel. So what's up? And then we get a panel of Gabriel staring forward and we get like a little narration box of what he wants to say. And that box says, I am an angel of the Lord, our God. And for the first time in existence, I am uncertain of my future, of everything. I am scared. But what he actually says is, I it's my father. Then we cut away from their conversation, but we're still in the same little restaurant and we see 
The man Thompson from the Cambridge Club is at a close by table and he's listening to everything that the snob is saying. And the snob continues. My father is a man of extremes. Moral distinctions are, for him, a simple question of right and wrong, of black and white. My brothers and I are therefore, well, we strive to be above reproach. I myself have assisted in disciplining some of the younger boys. But my eldest brother, the most promising of us all, he, he was worse than any of them. My father was sternest of all with him. And Julia is looking very intrigued by his story so far. And so she asks, well, what happened to him? And then we get this really interesting panel that is all black. And it looks like shadows have fallen on the snob. And he's looking down, which is causing the shadows to kind of fill his face and stuff too. So he looks kind of creepy. And he says, he fell. Then we cut to a little while later when we see the snob and Julie are leaving the restaurant. And the snob is saying, I apologize. This must all seem meaningless to you. And Julie replies, no, oh no, not at all. And anyway, you've got such a lovely voice. I could listen to you all night. And as they continue to walk, she asks, so are you in trouble too with your father? And the snob replies, I don't know. I may be. And so she asks, well, why do you think you're... And he cuts her off knowing what she was going to ask. And he answers her saying, a man said something to me, a man named Constantine. And we see as he says that last thing, Thompson from the club has followed them while they were walking and he's still listening. So he definitely hears the snob say the name Constantine. Then we cut to John who's walking the streets after he's hung out with his friends at the pub. And his narration says, I can hear the old days calling. Some of the shit I got off with last year, it's like 83 all over again. Out of the shadows and, all right, squire, trust me, and gone before you know it. Christ, that was a laugh. So it seems John is getting kind of sentimental. He's remembering some of the old days and how it used to be back in 1983. But then he gets serious and his narration continues saying, So I remind myself it wasn't. It was dead mates and lost souls and cold nights with a bottle while the ghosts howled round the door. And now it's different anyway. And then John says out loud, Kit. And then he lights a cigarette and his narration continues. And saying her name makes me more determined. And I almost believe my own bullshit. So it seems like John is just waiting for the shoe to drop. He likes Kit. He likes his life right now. But he knows something bad is bound to happen because he's John Constantine. So then we cut back to the snob and he is by himself. Julie is gone. And he's just walking on the street and the narration says, he told her more tonight than he himself had ever dared think before. Maybe you shouldn't worry too much, she said. Just because this Constantine makes nasty remarks doesn't mean your dad's angry with you. He sounds like a rat anyway. This guy, forget him. Every time she smiled, there was a little laugh dancing on her lips. So as the snob is walking, we're seeing him walk by a homeless man. And also there was a prostitute as he walks by on a corner. And the prostitute says, you lonely love and he doesn't say anything he just walks by her as he thinks about julie and his narration says and she'd be there again tomorrow if he wanted to talk some more and then as the snob walks by the prostitute we can see a smile on the snob's face and it seems like he's very happy at the thought that he might be talking to julie tomorrow and as he thinks about this i believe that some kind of power comes from him and it affects the prostitute because her eyes get really big and then after he passes her she is in tears and also she's biting her bottom lip and i can't tell if 
he just saved her like in the religious sense or if a wave of pleasure has just gone over her. Then we cut to the office of Charles Patterson, who is the man from the Cambridge Club who had Thompson follow the snob. And we see Charles is sitting at his desk and he's reading a book called The Beginner's Nietzsche. So apparently he's trying to learn up on how to become an ubermensch. So Thompson comes in and he says, Mr. Patterson? And Charles looks up and says, what are you doing here? I've been sitting here all night waiting for you to call. And Thompson replies, I didn't want a phone. I'm scared, Mr. Patterson. I'm shitting bricks. And Charles asks, what do you mean? What happened? And Thompson replies, he ended up talking with some do-gooder bird. That's what. I mean, he near as damn it told her who he was. He spooked Mr. Patterson. And I'll tell you who's bloody well doing it. It's Constantine. And then he wipes the sweat from his forehead and he says, I want out of this, all right? It's getting well out of order. Do you even remember what he is, for God's sake? And if that creepy sod is sticking his nose in it, that's it. I quit. And Charles gets very mad at this and he says, no, you frigging don't. And then he just kind of yells into the void, not at Thompson. Constantine, you little shit. You're not buggering this up for me. No way. I'll bloody kill you first. And then he throws his Nietzsche book across the room and knocks over a glass. And Thompson kind of scared ass, you gonna have him done in? Him? And Charles replies, don't be stupid. Anyone who tried probably end up putting the gun to their own head. No, no, I'll slap the bastard down. That's what I'll do. And then he points at Thompson and he says, Lenny Fisher told me he's shacked up with some Irish tart. Been going over a year. Get a couple of hards together, okay? Do her. And Thompson replies, yes, Mr. Patterson. And we get a full page splash of Patterson looking very angry as he leans over his desk and we see behind him hangs the British flag. So it seems Kit is now in danger and we'll have to see if John Constantine can protect her or maybe she can protect herself because she's pretty scrappy as well. But that's it for this issue. So if you guys have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can email me at planes, trains, and comic books, all one word at gmail.com. We will see you on the next one.